Okay, <clears throat> so we're, <clears throat> we're going to read, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to read from Acts chapter 21. Today, today we're, we're starting Church Alive again. I promised I wouldn't say that we've been in Acts for the last five years, but I'll just say it. Anyway, um, so there's two chapters we're looking at today, which normally you would think, oh, two chapters. Oh, no, he's not going to read two chapters, is he? But now I know you're thinking, if he's doing two chapters today, that's two chapters less for the rest of the month, okay? So I get it, all right? We're not going to read it all. We're going to read part of it. This is Acts chapter 21. We're going to start at verse 1 and read through to verse 32, I think, or thereabouts. So this is God's word. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed in Talmice, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When we would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nassim, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus, and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we've written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. 
Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And finishing at verse 32, the Lord will bless his truth to our hearts for Christ's sake. We ask it. Amen. Why do this now? You beautiful device. Yes, this is good. No. Okay, don't do it again. Okay, so sometimes courage fails you. You know, like when you want to ask someone out on a date and you can't just summon up the courage to do it. Or when you could apply for a job that you've just seen, but you don't think you've any chance of getting it and you just can't somehow summon up the courage to put the application form in. Or when you face a medical diagnosis, you've had some tests, you're waiting for the results, you really don't want that phone call. You really don't want that letter. You really don't want that meeting. Courage sometimes fails us. And yet courage is such an important thing in life. Winston Churchill once said, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Courage is really important. You see it in leadership, even in Winston Churchill himself, who said those words. It's kind of interesting. I, I sometimes think that when they made the movie about the early days of his premiership during the Second World War, what did they call the movie? They called it Darkest Hour. It was a moment for courage because courage is what really matters. The courage to continue, that's what counts. And in the book of the Acts, we have journeyed with several characters over the last while together. We have been with Peter and John. We have been with Priscilla and Aquila. We have been with Cornelius and Lydia and an unnamed prison officer. We have been with Barnabas and John Mark, to name a few. But in these final chapters over these next five weeks or six weeks together, it's just Paul. And in these chapters, mostly it's about how Paul faced the powers that be. And there is no doubt that courage often fails human beings in the face of authority. When you are in a position that someone is in authority over you, that can be a tough place to be courageous. 
When I was at primary school, my final year, I sat with a couple of friends of mine in the back row of the class. And one day, I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember that there was a time when you used to be able to buy children toy guns. And into the toy guns, you put something called caps, which were on a small roll that you put inside the gun. And as you fired the gun, the cap moved around and it made an explosive sound. And my friend sitting beside me had a roll of caps in his pocket. And he said to me, if you put one of those caps between two coins and stamp on it, the cap will go off. I said, no, it won't. He said, yeah, it will. He said, have you got two coins? He said, I do. So I lifted the two coins, put a cap between them, put it down between my feet underneath the desk and stamped on it. There was the loudest explosion (laughs) in the classroom. And immediately the teacher who was writing on the board turned around and said, who made that noise? And I said, it was me, sir, but he told me to do it. (laughs) It's in that moment of being before authority that courage often fails you. If I was going down, I was taking him down with me. I wasn't going down on my own. And sometimes that's what happens. And Paul faces authority in these stories in the book of Acts. And he passes the test. He is actually an example to us of courage. And that's what I want to think about today before in the next weeks we dive into the series of trials and other things that Paul's going to have to go through. I want to just pause for a moment and look at how his life is an example to us of what courage looks like in the world and before the powers. The story begins with a travel log. We read it earlier. Miletus to Kos, to Rhodes, to Patara, to Cyprus, on to Tyre, to Ptolemais, to Caesarea, and finally to Jerusalem. As you read through the text, it's just a series of verses, you know, but it kind of hides the fact that this journey was perilous. It was unpredictable. Um, you had to find ships. There were no passenger ships sailing around the Mediterranean. Mostly the ships that Paul was looking for <clears throat> would have been grain ships that brought grain from Alexandria uh, to Italy to feed, uh, basically to feed the city of Rome. And those were the ships that were plying their trade through the Mediterranean. That's what you were looking for. But you weren't always able to find them easily. And so the travel could take some time while you waited around to find a suitable ship. Paul travels on sea, he travels on land. The travel log that we read there took at least weeks and possibly months. And eventually, he arrives in Jerusalem and the last recorded events of Paul's earthly ministry begin. The story of these last days that we're going to look at in the succeeding weeks are filled with death threats, various trials, spells of imprisonment, making it to Rome and his appeal to Caesar and testimony to Jesus in the very heart of the empire itself. And along the way, in this story, above all other things, it demands courage. And then the events before us today that are in chapter 21 that we read, chapter 22 that we didn't read, that you can look in for yourself later, in those chapters... That courage shows up in various ways and it expresses itself differently depending on the context. I want to look at that for a moment or two. First of all, you see Paul finding courage among his friends. Courage among his friends. Um, 
Lisa was telling me the other day about a friend of hers called Nula who went to the um, Irish rugby game in Lansdowne Road uh, not so long ago. And, uh, but she and her husband didn't manage to get tickets in the same section of the ground, and so they were in different parts of the ground. And after the game was over, they both left, planning to meet up at a particular point. But when Nula came out of the ground, she was in an unfamiliar part of Dublin. She lost her way. She didn't quite know where she was, and she ended up beside the canal. Walking, just, she became aware that walking behind her were five or six men who also had just come from the match. And as she was walking along on her own, not sure where she was, one of the men started to say to her, what do you think about the match, love? And on and on and on, goading her, trying to get her into conversation, she felt really frightened at this point. This is something maybe the males in the audience are struggling to understand because they would have thought it was just a bit of crack. The women in the audience are thinking, yeah, I've been there myself. She picked up her phone, phoned her husband, said what the situation was, and he said, look, just stop walking. Stay where you are, and I know where you are. I'll come and get you. But she didn't think she could stop walking because with every step, this group of guys were getting closer to her and getting more vociferous, and she was getting more and more scared. Eventually, after she came off the phone with her husband, she heard one of the guys speak up and say to his mates, hey, guys, cut it out. Give the girl a break. And she stopped and she turned around to them and she said, you guys will probably never know and never quite understand just how threatening that behavior is and how difficult it is for a woman on her own in these circumstances to be here. But she looked at the guy who had spoken and said, thank you for what you just did. We single women in situations like this need men to be allies for them. Thank you for what you did. Having courage among your friends is sometimes one of the biggest challenges in life. If you're one of a group of people doing something and everybody's enjoying it and it's great fun, how do you speak up and say this is actually not good? Where do you find that courage? You see it in Paul just here. On his journey to Jerusalem, Paul confronts warning after warning from the church when he got to Tyre, we read in, we read in verse 4, we sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So this is Paul's friends. He's with them in Tyre. It's the local church body. And they're saying to him, Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem. And then when he makes his way to Caesarea, staying in the home of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven with four prophetic daughters, a key figure in some of the early stories in the book of the Acts, while he's staying there, this guy called Agabus, who's a prophet, arrives on the scene. And we read in, in verse 11, coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. What would you do in these circumstances? What would you do? Because it sort of gets worse for Paul because the warnings weren't simply the understandable concerns of a few church members. Paul, you're going to Jerusalem. It's a dodgy situation in Jerusalem right now. You're not exactly the, 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 the most welcome person there. Could you not go somewhere else instead? Please don't go to Jerusalem. Just general concern, people feeling, you know, a bit anxious about Paul's circumstances. It's actually much more than that because we then read in verse 12, when we heard this, 
We and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up Jerusalem. Who's the we? The we is Dr. Luke, who's writing these words, one of Paul's closest associates and the other friends and traveling ministry partners who were with Paul, not just some general group in the local congregation saying, oh, you know, we feel a wee bit worried about Paul. These were some of Paul's closest friends and confidants. The person actually writing the story saying, this is what we thought too. And of course, on both occasions, it included the claim that the Holy Spirit was speaking through the human voices in Tyre and in Caesarea. This is not just general concern. This is not just his closest colleagues. This is also people speaking in the name of the Spirit of God. What do you do? Paul remains unconvinced. Not about the validity of the concern, but about the conclusion drawn from it. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. There's no doubt that Paul was moved by the tears of his friends. He said, you're breaking my heart here. There's no doubt that he's aware of the wisdom of the advice that it would be a better idea not to go to Jerusalem. And he's also no doubt conscious of the Spirit's motivation behind the warnings. It wasn't just that these people felt concerned themselves. It was they were also conscious of the fact of the potential implications for Paul's ministry and for the life of the church. And they were speaking on behalf of the Spirit. But still, Paul dissents from his friends and their love and concern, and even from the authority of those who speak in the Spirit. He has the courage to say, no, that, that's not what I need to do. I know what I need to do. I know what God is calling me to do. I hear your concern. I see your tears. You're breaking my heart here. But there's something I need to do. And at times there is a need for the courage to respectfully dissent from the opinions of our friends, those closest to us, and even from the advice and concern of the local church. There are moments when it is necessary to respectfully dissent. There is that incredible story in Exodus chapter 32 when Moses is on the mountain with God he has received the Ten Commandments and a whole list of other instructions from God, the living word of God for the people that he leads. And while he's there, he becomes aware of the fact that something's going on down below. He doesn't know what it is, but God knows what it is. A golden calf has been made and people are practicing idolatrous worship while Moses is on the mountain with God. And in those moments, God says to Moses, I need you to leave me right now. I need you to get away from me right now. I want you to get as far from me as you possibly can because my anger is going to burn and I'm going to destroy these people. So I need you to get out of my way so I can do it. And Moses respectfully dissents. He said, I'm sorry, Lord, but I can't go because you can't do this. This is not who you are. This is not why you brought these people here. no. I won't leave. No, you can't do this. Courage. 
Because sometimes where we need courage is actually in the company of people that we are close to. Friends, family, work colleagues, people we enjoy leisure with, company we find ourselves in, situations we find ourselves in, where we need to be the one voice who says no. We need to respectfully dissent. There are times in your life when you just know. When you just know. And those are the times when you need courage and grace to respectfully dissent from what's going on around you. Paul had courage among his friends, but he also had courage before his enemies. Being courageous before those with power over you is hard. It could be someone who did you a favor in the past and you don't feel completely free in their company to say what you think or to to do what you know is right. Or it could be a, a, a boss at work It could be the the culture of a company or a firm or an office that you you work in. And uh, to dissent from that or to speak against that is to put yourself in difficulty. There's a massive thing going on in public news right now. Dr. Tamara Bronkers, who was a vet who worked with the Department of Agriculture and who became a whistleblower, um, who who tried to speak out about things that were happening uh, that she knew were wrong. Uh, She was sidelined, ignored, uh, really pushed out of her work. She eventually resigned, but she didn't leave it there. She found the courage to talk about what had happened, and and she took the department to court. She won her case, and now there's a whole fluster about it, and people are having to answer for their behavior. All of that is only possible. We only know about this because this one individual had courage to stand out against people who had authority over her. And in Jerusalem, Paul confronted political power. Jewish political power and Roman political power. And the church leaders, when he came up to Jerusalem, were concerned. They were also subject to those same powers. And they were concerned about what would happen if people found out that Paul was in Jerusalem. And the reason why they were concerned about this was because of what was commonly believed about Paul. It says in Acts 21, we read it, they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. Now James, who was in charge in in the church in Jerusalem, James didn't believe this. But what he was trying to do was to try to correct the misrepresentation of Paul's teaching. So he suggested a way out. And his solution to the problem was, if you show up in the temple with a group of guys who are uh, involved in taking a vow, and if you pay for their expenses for that and and demonstrate that you're a part of the group, then it'll show everybody that you haven't got a problem with our Jewish customs, but in fact, you're quite able and willing to take part in them. Seemed like a good idea. Problem was it totally backfired. Because when Paul was in the temple courts with these uh, men who were making the vow, the difficulty was that somebody recognized him. Somebody from Asia, probably from Ephesus. And they recognized Paul, realized who he was. They realized that Paul was in Jerusalem 
with Gentile friends and assumed that Paul had brought those friends into the temple courts and this person started a near riot during which Paul was physically expelled from the temple courts and received a severe beating from which he probably would have died if he hadn't been saved through the intervention of the Roman commander and his troops. And what followed, which we didn't read today, in chapter 22 was the Roman commander stops the riot that was going on, arrests Paul, and then tries to get an explanation out of the Jews in the city of Jerusalem who are going absolutely bucked off, as we might say, why they are in the state of mind that they are in. And he can't get a sensible answer out of them because five people are speaking at once and he doesn't know what they're talking about. So eventually he has a conversation with Paul and asks him what actually is going on. And it's really interesting to see what Paul does in the circumstances because Paul shows his incredible wisdom right here. To the Roman commander, he speaks in Greek. And the Roman commander is really taken aback And we kind of assume when we look at the surface of the text that what the Roman commander was surprised about was that Paul could actually speak Greek. The reality was a vast majority of people in that part of the world could pass themselves in Greek because it had almost become like the universal language. And most people had a smattering of it and could have vaguely made themselves understood. The point about Paul was not that he could speak Greek. What the Roman commander heard was somebody who spoke Greek without a local accent. Somebody educated. My oldest uh, child, Esther, uh, did German and French um, at university, and she spent a year uh, of her time there in Germany, working in a school uh, in Mainz. And while she was there initially, she stayed with the family for six weeks before she got her own apartment. And but but those that family became friends and and. Uh, So over her time there, she was backwards and forwards with the family. And when Christine and I went out to visit her separately during her time there, we also went to Marilyn's home uh, to meet her. And to both Christine and me, while we were in Marilyn's home, she said something about Esther's German. She said that her German was spoken with no accent whatsoever that you would have thought that she was born and brought up in Germany. And that's exactly what the Roman commander heard when he heard Paul speak Greek. He suddenly realized this was an educated person. For somebody in his position to have an education like that probably meant that he came from a wealthy, potentially aristocratic family of some sort. And this, therefore, was not some common or garden rogue. And so he pricked up his ears and he listened to what Paul had to say. Interesting that Paul did that because when Paul finally gets the trust of the commander and his permission to address the crowd, he addresses the crowd in Aramaic. The Roman commander will not be able to understand what he's about to say. The Gentile believers who have come with Paul to Jerusalem will not understand what he's about to say. The only people who are going to get what Paul says next are the people in the crowd who want to kill him. And there's that interesting point where it says, when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. The Roman commander listens to Paul and thinks, whoa, this guy's one of us. The Jewish residents in Jerusalem listen to Paul and think this guy's one of us. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant stroke of genius. But in what Paul says, 
in Aramaic to the crowd. And later, what the Roman commander will hear in the next part of the story that you'll be talking about in the succeeding weeks. What Paul actually does with that opportunity is he testifies. He simply tells his story. And if things were bad before he told his story, they were 10 times worse afterwards. Because the very last thing Paul told him in the story was this. Then the Lord said to me, he says in Acts twenty two twenty one, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And after he says that, the crowd goes daft again. Why? Where's the problem with that phrase? Why did it take so much courage for Paul to say that? Well, the reality was that in Jerusalem at this moment of time, tensions between Jews and Gentiles in Jerusalem were at an all-time high. Anything that looked like or smelt like accommodation of Gentiles and Gentile ways of life was anathema to the people in Jerusalem at this point. So much so that there were a group of people who had a particular nickname in Jerusalem. They were basically temple assassins. What they were was they were people who attended the worship services in the temple. They carried curved bladed knives with them. They singled out in the crowd of worshipers, usually aristocratic people who were held to have compromised in some way with the Gentile authorities in the city and they killed them there and then in the temple and slipped away in the crowd so they were never caught. That was the level of tension that was the reality in Jerusalem at this moment of time. And Paul knew all this. So in any way to indicate to this crowd that he had anything to do with the Gentiles was likely to put himself in massive danger. And yet he testifies to what God had said to him. Paul knew it. In fact, Paul himself was that very kind of person. In Acts 22, telling his own story, he already said to the crowd, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. Later in one of his letters, Paul would describe himself as a violent man. He knew exactly what the context in the city of Jerusalem was. And yet in those circumstances, he found the courage to tell his story. Why? Because Paul's story was Jesus' story anyway. And that was why he was there. If there was an explanation for Paul's life, that was it. That every single situation he entered, every new conversation he had, every group of people that he met, he had one purpose in being there and one purpose only, and that purpose was to tell the story that was the story of his life, that was the story of Jesus and what he had done in Paul's life. And so in this really difficult set of circumstances, fraught with all sorts of problems and hostility, Paul does what he does. He tells his story. The question that most requires courage in life is nearly always the why question. Why do you behave the way you do? Why do you have the values you have? Why are you not like so many other people in this office, in this football team, in this family circle? Why are you different? Because the only answer to the why question 
is to tell the Jesus story. And that's what requires courage almost more than anything else in life. Courage before your friends. That's hard. Courage before your enemies is likely to have even deeper consequences for your life and often revolves around the why question. Why are you who you are? Why do you live the way you do? Why do you have these values? Because the answer to that question every time is the Jesus story. Courage. We admire it in other people when we see it. Are we facing situations in our lives right now where actually we really need that courage? Amongst our friends, we have been silent for far too long before our enemies, before people who have power and authority over us. We have been scared to speak up. And isn't that what we're being called to be and to do? And in a minute or two, aren't we going to take into our hands the symbols of the most courageous activity ever recorded in human history? As we take bread and wine and remember that the Jesus story is not just a story, but it is the factual reality of somebody who stood in your place and mine, who carried a burden that was not his, who paid a debt that he didn't have, who died a death that was mine and yours to die. And he did all that with the courage that we're talking about this morning. And if we take these symbols in our hands in a moment or two of bread or wine, is that not what we're committing ourselves to do? To live a similar kind of life because it was the story behind these symbols that changed Paul's life and made him able to be what he was in those events we're looking at and the other ones you're going to look at in the succeeding weeks. If we take these symbols in our hands now, is that not the commitment we're being called to? And isn't it our prayer as we come to take these symbols in our hands that God would give us the courage that these symbols show?